0: Welcome everyone to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law.
1: And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about
0: civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to Keeping It Civil. Henry and I were fortunate this week to talk with Khalil Gibran Muhammad, He's the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race and Public Policy at Harvard University, formerly directed the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, and wrote a really outstanding book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. We talked to Muhammad about the role of history in this current moment and how significant it is for understanding where we are. We talked about his book project and its focus on racial crime statistics. Uh, and we talked about his podcast as well, Hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Khalil, thank you so much for joining us on the Keeping It Civil podcast. I, w- I wanted to start big, and I wanted to probe your thoughts as a historian and ask about you know history and its importance. And it seems to me that history, there's a lot of people who are foregrounding history. There are podcasts about history. A lot of people are making arguments that sound in history. So history is it's in the forefront, but a lot of the history is distorted. And so I wondered, from your perspective as a historian, how do you read this and how do you interpret kind of this invoking history, even though much of it is inaccurate or partial?
2: It's a good question. I mean, the first thing I, I think about, and I teach this to my students all the time, is that history's everywhere. I mean, no one makes a claim, a normative claim about what ought to happen whether it's in their own family context or most certainly in our national political culture, without some sense of what's happened in the past. And I think that what animates a lot of the consternation and debate, even backlash to what we ought to be teaching history in this moment only illustrates how powerful it is. It's not as if the current moment suggests there wasn't history being taught and there weren't historical stakes to what that history was. And so in a moment where there are competing claims about what the future of the nation should be, it's not a surprise at all that we've come to this moment of, of great debates about history or culture wars over what we ought to be talking about the past. In some ways, it's very exciting as a historian to live in this moment of course, it's also terribly frustrating. (laughs) So,
1: (laughs) Khalil, do you think there's some sort of greater contingency than in previous eras about the future of the country? You know, you said there's some sort of great debate happening about where the future of the country should go, but isn't every country really always engaged in a great debate about where the future of the country should be?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's hard to measure in this moment whether or not this is Exceptional by comparison to these prior inflection points. You know, we could point to the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement as two of the most obvious, but not the only ones. It just depends on the issues at stake. What I'd say, though, is that uh, history is cumulative and we could squeeze some progress out of the unfinished business, say, of civil rights that was so apparent during the hundred years between the end of the Civil War sort of apex of the civil rights movement in 1965 one could imagine that yes we could legislatively fix separate but unequal the question now is um, if it's not just a legislative fix to that history what comes next and i think it's a little bit hard to tell whether this will will push us into a new moment there are a lot of indicators uh, for example the demographics of the nation have have uh, drawn people into another kind of existential crisis around what the future of America will be? Will it maintain its core identity that some people think is a European heritage shaped by Christian ideals? We could go down this rabbit hole, but I think the answer is the jury's still out as to how we will look back
0: on this moment. When we're looking back and kind of using history as you know an explanatory variable of the present, you know, there are some who say, look, the past is just that, it's the past, and it doesn't necessarily inform or maybe shouldn't inform some of these contemporary conversations. How do you respond to those folks?
2: It's a little bit nonsensical. I mean, again, <laughs> I don't think anyone in a leadership role as a politician, a policymaker, even a principal of a school can proceed on the basis of inspiring or educating people without some historical narrative underneath it all. So when we say we can move on without focusing on the past, it's really another way of saying a certain kind of past. I don't know how else to emphasize that other than, you know, listen carefully uh, to people when they talk about leadership. And if we're going to talk about the size of government, for example, it's rooted in historical claims about what the founders intended and what they debated over and who, who won the debate. And the, you know, the true nature and purpose of government, you know, domestic peace and national security. These are all historical claims. So I don't think we can ever escape as a society and no society, I think, can escape some sense of how the past underwrites present claims about the future.
0: As a political scientist, both Henry and I are political scientists, and um, you know I'm I'm a political junkie as well. And I think that in these conversations, there's always the question about what's politically profitable as well. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. you know some people say, well, as accurate as some of these historical claims might be, particularly those related to race, it's politically unproductive to dwell on them. And I know you, not only are you a historian, you're a public policy scholar as well, so I wonder uh, what your response is to that argument about the the kind of political costs of historical honesty.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that I'm going to use history to make the point that we've been accommodating the political calculation about what's possible around issues of civil rights and racial justice on precisely this notion that we ought to whitewash, sanitize, erase, or minimize history in that effort so as not to push people into their corners of resentment or various forms of backlash. I would challenge most political scientists or political theorists to look to especially the civil rights era, but even the antebellum period, and note how accommodating leaders like Dr. King or Frederick Douglass or fill in the blank of many in between were in appealing to the highest aspirations of the American ideal. That is to say, the true nature of America is one that is about freedom and liberty. And if only we reach for that true ideal, can we solve this current crisis of racism? I think it's yielded some fruit, We certainly ended up on the other side of slavery, and to some degree, we resolved some of the legislative shortcomings that the Reconstruction period had not delivered in the civil rights legislation of 64 and 65. But here we are coming on the heels of a presidency that by any stretch of our imaginations appealed to some of the deepest strains of white supremacy and white nationalism. And therefore, I'm not sure that we are capable of producing leaders in this country without some commitment to an honest historical reckoning, lest we keep repeating these 50-year cycles of nadirs where we just hit the bottom and then we come around again and we do it all over again. I, I actually think that the most innovative thing we could do in this moment is get our history right.
1: Which brings us maybe to your book, the condemnation of, of blackness. You're a historian of uh, race relations in the U.S., and one of the things I thought was so interesting about the book was your focus on statistics and the uh, use of statistics on crime rates among different ethnicities in the U.S. Perhaps as a to create political narratives, and it might be interesting to listeners of the podcast if you just walked us through that argument in an obviously very condensed form, but why do you focus so much on statistics and census data in the book? Why is this so important to the narrative of race relations in the U.S.?
2: Yes, well, I think that the best way to explain why these statistics emerge at a key moment and have been so sticky in our national discourse about race in this country is because many people think that when we talk about The past say in the period of the mid 19th century whether it's antebellum slavery or the period after slavery there's this this false notion that all those people were racist and we get it right things were bad back then but they're much better now but part of what the argument in my book does is to disrupt this notion by pointing out how self-conscious how self-reflective and how keenly aware Key knowledge producers were journalists, elected officials, social scientists, many, many others were about being tagged as a racist or being anti-Black. There was, to my reading, about as much sensitivity around this issue then as there is now, in which case the turn to statistics as a form of communicating racial difference tried to give people the shield of objectivity so that they could say things using crime statistics about the disproportionate evidence of arrests or convictions among Black people that communicated, I'm not a racist, I'm just pointing out the facts. And these facts tell us that we ought to do things to protect ourselves from them. We, we ought to make sure that they are subject to state surveillance. We ought to make sure that not too many of them move into these neighborhoods, lest our communities become overrun with crime. And that form of communicating through this empirical gesture towards statistics, as if they weren't themselves artifacts of deeply racist realities, is a very durable thing in our society. It comes into being at a particular moment after the Civil War in the late 19th century, and it's still with us.
0: I love the book, I, we should say the book was first published in 2010 and then was reissued in 2019. I missed it in 2010, but I just found it to be an extraordinarily rich intellectual history. And one of the striking things about it was the, the arc that you note between, this is in the uh, late 1800s and then turn of the century into the 20th century. The move from biological explanations of black criminality that turned into culture-based arguments for black criminality and then morphed somewhat into arguments based on environment uh, as the kind of source for black criminality. And when I was reading that history, I was just thinking, we're having the exact same conversations now. I mean, if you read you know, reports put out by, say, the Roosevelt Institute and then compare those with reports from the Manhattan Institute or other place. It seems like we're having the exact same debates, you know, well over a century later. Is that your sense also?
2: Yeah, that's my sense. And, and and it's not a sense that I had going into the project. What I was interested in was telling a history or even learning a history that ran through places outside of the South, like Chicago, where I grew up and where my grandparents were born not the South. As a graduate student in the early 1990s, so much of the history of the criminal justice system was about the Southern aspects of convict leasing and chain gangs. So I really, I just started the project saying, well, what's going on in these Northern places that are evolving in relationship to the Great Migration, to the movement of Black people from the South to the North? In the process of doing the research, I was quite surprised at how much the shape of the argument about why Black crime statistics were a kind of proof that America's problem of racial disparities was really a problem of inferiority and pathology and not a problem of systemic inequality. And the durability of that claim moves, as you've already noted, from one rooted in well, they're just biologically different. They're born this way to, well, no, they're not born this way. They were once slaves and they've not grown up with enough moral instruction and freedom to follow the rules like the rest of us. And so that's the culture argument. And then finally, well, they're living in the most impoverished ghettoized communities and therefore their crime rates make sense, but we still don't necessarily owe them anything to solve for that segregation. So yes, I was surprised, and it certainly gave the book a kind of resonance today.
1: One thing I was wondering about in the in the book is how you trace the influence or the persistence of ideas from the 1890s in particular seems to be a key period of analysis for you all the way through to the present day. So as a historian, how do you think about the persistence of ideas? How is it that these ideas that perhaps emerged for the first time very long ago, you know, 130 years ago, how do they persist for such a long time? Are they through institutions, through uh, scholarly discourse? How do these ideas persist?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Well, they persist because people were socialized one generation to the next uh, into a way of understanding what to make of these crime statistics. So one story that your listeners might be surprised by, which is a big deal in the book, is that in the late 19th century, you know, all of these European populations of immigrants, from Irish immigrants to Italian immigrants, other Eastern immigrant populations, from Russian Jews to Polish Catholics, are being defined to some degree by their relative fitness in American society, by crime statistics. At some point, though, sociologists emerge and say, well, wait a minute. All of these people are subject to xenophobic attacks, nativist political movements, racism in society, and therefore their crime statistics ought to be interpreted in relationship to these structural inequalities and and forms of discrimination that they face. And eventually they move to a position, they say, you know what, given all of that, we should not even keep crime statistics on how many Irish people committed burglary or how many Italians committed murder, because they're counterproductive to knowing that these communities are becoming Americans, which meant white Americans, and these statistics are stigmatizing. This was an argument that they made. So by the mid-1930s, you can't find crime statistics anymore about how many Irish or Italians committed anything in the way of a criminal act or an index crime. But Black remains a durable signifier. And in that way, we haven't left the notion that we ought to know how much crime Black people are committing. And the truth is that it's used as a universal signifier of deviance because White as a category of criminality simply is a baseline. No one pays any attention in the aggregate other than say white collar criminality to some extent, or in the midst of the opioid or heroin epidemic, we sort of see evidence that there's a huge problem and therefore we ought to do something in the public health arena to deal with it.
0: And one of the interesting anecdotes from the book also involves how vice, do you talk about vice and how it basically was intentionally kind of moved or migrated from some of those white ethnic communities into black communities. Can you say a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it's shocking. <laughs> that's, what, that's what should be said. It's, it, it's shocking because, again, we are all socialized. I mean that in the, in the most literal sense. Those who are Americans who are educated in this country are socialized through our social studies and history curricula to believe that people have a fair shot. And so nowhere in the lesson plan is there this moment that the way to solve for structural disadvantage in white communities is also to move vice out of those communities and put them elsewhere. And so where they put them was to say, we're going to regulate a certain amount of sex work and drug trafficking in black communities, and they're not going to be able to do anything about it because they don't have the political capital to object white voters aren't going to object to this. And we will solve for the moral crisis that exists in these other communities by giving white children and their families a better shot at healthier, safer communities. Because when men want to do vice, they can just go to the black community and everyone's fine. So, I mean, you're hearing me also say implicitly that regulating vice is is an age-old problem that transcends, you know, history. And therefore, there's different ways to do it. But in America, one way to do it was to say, well, just let it happen in black communities. Don't let's just try to get it out of the white communities as much as we can. And so, you know, just I'll just add one more point to that. The consequence of that, of course, was that black communities, as early as the first decades of the 20th century, were then subjected not only to the cost of regulated vice in a system they couldn't control. They didn't own the businesses of drug dealing and prostitution at scale, and they certainly didn't control the political and law enforcement apparatus that made all that possible. And yet they bore the burden of stigma for being communities of crime and vice. They bore the statistical realities of then being subjected to heavy-handed arrest and police activity when someone did decide, let's clean up this community. And then all the political saliency that came with running against keeping black people in their ghettoized, segregated communities, lest their crime advice move into a neighborhood near you. And it's just really remarkable, the
1: consequences. So, Khalil, given the direct connection that you see between the sort of statistics of black criminality and the use of those statistics in the past and these sorts of policies of discrimination. What's your attitude towards statistic keeping today and towards quantitative social science and criminology? How do you see the use of these sorts of statistics in public policy today?
2: It's a tough question, and I've been getting that question for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it is a hard one to uh, give a satisfactory answer to. So, so I'll do the best that I can, as, as I always try. Today in this moment, it's possible to win an argument that the historical framing of why there is racial disparity, that is the overrepresentation of Black people in the system, is proof of systemic racism. It's, it's possible to win that argument today. It hasn't always been possible. And I write a book that basically shows that mostly people made that argument lost. Which is to say, then, that one might not necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater if one were to argue that these racialized crime statistics have done more harm than good. It is also true outside of the United States, when we look particularly at places like France or Brazil, where such statistics are not kept administratively, that it has been harder for oppressed more minoritized populations there to make the case for systemic racism, precisely because they couldn't point to the kind of hard evidence that various academics and activists have used in the United States. That being said, um, if we were to look at a scorecard, I I think we're still in the losing column uh, for how these crime statistics have worked. To go back to the story of the Irish or the Italians... You know, they benefit from what I call a form of statistical white flight. It worked to their advantage. The disappearance of being able to associate their nationality with crime statistics essentially made them disappear into a universal category. And that universal category protected them from the stigma of criminality. Could we imagine a post-racial move like that for Black people? Yes. But I think we'd sort of be losing the forest for the trees. And what I mean by that is... The larger move to, for statistical white flight was really a decision to incorporate in most ways those populations into the American social contract. And so in some ways, crime statistics are just an artifact of the choice not to do that for Black populations that remain salient in this country today.
1: It's interesting because in political science, there's been a huge debate in empirical political science about the extent to which, with the data available in different contexts, you're able to estimate things like uh, racial disparities in persecution or prosecution of crimes by police and stoppages of people on the street or in their cars by police. And there's been a really quite sort of technically sophisticated econometric debate about what differences you're able to estimate and what you're not. There have been quite prominent studies showing large racial disparities, for example, in the character of the police officers and the frequency of arrests and violence against civilians and things like this. And so I guess as a political scientist, I'm I'm really interested to hear your opinion on that, Khalil, whether you think that by virtue of keeping these statistics, you're able to shed light on these sorts of problems. Whereas even if the statistics are in fact a, an artifact of a process that you think is deeply problematic, whether they might be uh, used for, as a force for some good today and maybe in the future.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that, that's the point I tried to make about being able to make these arguments today, whether they're more technically, empirically sophisticated and internal to academic debates that translate outward Or just more broadly, an argument made by people like Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow. You know, in other words, pointing out the sort of most simplistic descriptive statistics that 80 to 90% of people convicted of drug crimes in various states in the 1990s were black or brown by comparison to the fact that that population is still small by comparison to white users who use drugs at the same rate, like, you know, kind of a simple argument, simple descriptive data and makes a compelling case. As a political scientist, I think you'd recognize that we are living in a particular moment where the limits of that argument may be coming into focus, which is to say academia has been now charged with being part of a liberal conspiracy. The media is part of a liberal conspiracy. (laughs) The real truth is that Black people commit a lot more crime against white people that everyone's covering up. And so we have a different kind of problem than, say, simply proving it empirically, even if there are more empiricists who are committed to that work. And I just don't want to lose sight of the both end of the challenge.
0: You touched on a question where I wanted to go with the next question, which was, some people, they hear conversations like this, they'll hear what what you've said, and they'll say, well, Khalil is, he sounds like an apologist for demonstrable, empirically verifiable crime that's happening. And it sounds like, again, he's apologizing for crime that's happening in communities, many of which are black communities, and many of which, according to surveys, uh, would prefer that we have more policing in those communities. I'm sure you've had versions of this conversation many times, but I was curious how you respond to those folks about the claim that you are kind of overlooking the reality of persistent destructive crime in certain Black and brown communities.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question, and uh, and actually, condemnation answers this question head on, looking at the past. So the first answer to this question is that high rates of community violence does not, by definition, mean we should have more policing and more punishment. <laughs> the evidence of that uh, is that sociologists hundred years ago essentially argued just the opposite they said at the Chicago School of Sociology at Columbia University, across most of what today would be recorded in the American Journal of Sociology amongst leading academics would essentially point to the fact that uh, high rates of violence tended to reflect larger problems in uh, society uh, that ought to be met as root cause problems with pro-social interventions. So if people are so willing to resort to violence, they're either participating in underground economies that themselves incentivize such forms of violence, because you can't take your case (laughs) to court if you're competing over market share, this is the problem of prohibition, of alcohol prohibition, for example, which is a, a big part of the story, which I write about in a separate article. The response to all of the immigrant crime that went on that eugenicists and nativists used as evidence that these were inferior Europeans that shouldn't be in America in the first place was responded to by sociologists who called themselves progressives and said, you know, we need to not only give these people an economic pathway to mobility and a better future, but we also need to reform the police because they are on the front lines of doing some of the social control and some of the abusive behavior that alienates these communities. None of this is abstract. All of it is well-documented history. And indeed, one can see in the moment of our opioid and meth crisis that These are not just communities of drug addiction that may have started with the overprescribing of pharmaceuticals. These are also places where drug dealing is going on, competition over drug dealing, and related crimes of opportunity happen when people are feeding their habit. And yet we understand that policing and locking these people up is not going to solve the underlying drug addiction problem. We get that. That's the first answer. And so why in heaven's name would we continue to presume that somehow... Policing is the best and most effective solution to diminishing community harm. And it's also important to just simply say that statistically, even the violence that happens in Black communities not only remains historically low, but only represents about 5% of what people are, what police officers are being called to respond to in the first place. And so while that doesn't diminish the realness of it, the problem is that we know policing itself is a vector of violence and can be what we might call criminogenic. More police contact can actually encourage criminal behavior. So that's that's how I respond to the the first part of that. But the second part you said about surveys showing that Black people actually want more policing, I think is a real concern. It's a real question. And again, I go back to socialization. If you've only ever been told that police officers are the best Response that you can expect in your community, then you're going to call for the police and hope that they do a good job when they show up at your doorstep, which continues to happen. I like to point to an example of this socialization process because Bill Bratton is hailed as you know America's top cop. He served in six departments going uh, back to the 1970s in Boston, where he began his career. He recently ended his career in New York City under De Blasio, just before this more recent turn uh, with. Eric Adams is the new mayor. And Bradon has repudiated any notion that we ought to look at the social determinants of criminality as the way to respond to it. He's repudiated it. He said this is about criminal behavior. We ought to treat the crime problem for what it is, and that will deliver public safety to these communities. So people are trying to figure out who to listen to. They're going to listen to some Harvard professor or they're going to listen to America's Top Cop. (laughs) So, you know, there you have it.
1: I think we wanted to ask you about some of your more public intellectual activities. And Josh has some questions on the podcast that you run. But maybe as a bit of a segue, you could talk a little bit about whether you see yourself today as a professional historian, whether you see yourself as a public intellectual or public Policy researcher or expert, you wear a lot of different hats. It would be really interesting to hear you talk about that. I don't
2: necessarily dwell on any of those identities. I mean, my day job certainly is as an educator uh, whose responsibilities range from teaching to doing research. Uh, that's what pays the bills around here. <laughs> so I would identify myself that way first and foremost. But having run a cultural institution, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, located in Harlem, as part of the New York Public Library. It's the oldest and most important archive dedicated to the history of the global Black diaspora. I am keenly aware of how large the gap is often between academic research and public knowledge. And it bugs me. It bothers me. Because I do think that the work that we do here on this, uh, in this conversation is important, and yet oftentimes it doesn't make it into the public sphere. We depend a lot on intermediaries to do that work, journalists probably most obviously, but also congressional staffers and other policy wonks who work in the think tank world. I don't know. I'd rather have a little bit more direct impact on how some of my own work and the ideas that I think are meaningful and matter. I'd have a, a, you know, I'd like to have a better or closer line to delivering that information than depending on these intermediaries. It's a both and it's not one or the other, but that probably explains why I take on these other responsibilities. You're a busy man by the looks
1: of things, Khalil. I don't know how you do it all.
2: I am. Yeah. Well, you know, choices, right? Some things I've really only written one academic book. I'm proud of it, but I wish that the follow-up studies that I have on my plate were done. And so I'm not going to sugarcoat the fact that there are trade-offs. I'd just add that were this not, to me, a moment of intense political backlash to a lot of the work that I do, I probably could find myself holed up somewhere writing a lot more feverishly.
0: So we should note that you uh, have your own podcast co-hosted with your childhood friend, Ben Austin, the journalist, uh, and the title of that podcast is, Some of My Friends Are... Dot Dot Dot." Some of My Best Friends Are. <laughs> a very entertaining podcast. There's a wide range of topics you guys touch on, including critical race theory. Uh, I think the opening episode, if I recall, was on uh, black-white buddy films. There's an episode on how the Obamas talk about race. I wanted to ask you about one of the more compelling episodes that was, I thought, was very compelling on European prisons. And my understanding is you took a trip to, I think, Germany. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yep.
0: And explored prisons there and how prisoners are treated. I you know, you and Ben also wrote about this in the in the New York Times. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how? And I can't overgeneralize, but how a number of European countries differ from the United States when it comes to incarceration.
2: Yes, it's a a pretty striking difference. I mean, so we talk a lot about being a free nation and a liberal democracy, and yet there are more people in cages here than anywhere in the world. And so then one might say, well, we have more criminals. And so that makes sense. But if you look at other European countries, you can look at the UK countries, you can look at Germany, France, you can look at the Scandinavian and and Finnish countries, Countries And you see essentially that in the same period when the United States went on a prison binge in the 1980s and early 90s, as a response, policymakers responding to increasing rates of violence, those are the countries chose not to do the same. They all experienced increasing rates of violence. Uh, Michael Tonry is really wonderful law professor at the University of Minnesota has written extensively on this. And you can just look at the empirical evidence of the relationship of crime and violence to incarceration. So only the United States chose to build as many cages as possible in response to this problem. In all these places, crime fell precipitously around the same time, the mid-1990s and early 2000s and leveled off as true in the United States. But our incarceration rate increased sevenfold. So we know this statistically, but looking closer on the ground, we now have a better sense of what their thinking was. And what Ben and I saw, he was in Finland and Norway, and I was uh, in Germany on two separate trips with Two different communities. But we saw the same thing, which is that there was a commitment not only to much shorter time of incarceration. So uh, 95% of people in those countries variously are out of prison within two and a half to four years. So no matter what they do, they could commit murder, doesn't matter. Whereas we routinely incarcerate people for 20, 30, 40 years. So basic math is you put people in prison for a much longer period of time, your incarceration rate goes up because they're just there. (laughs) And in these other countries, there's much more churn. People, you know, come and go. So that's one thing. But the other thing, just to finish on, is that the philosophy of punishment is very different. The philosophy of punishment is to restore people individually to a social contract that basically says, look, you've done something wrong. You've harmed society. You've harmed an individual. Let's figure out why you did it. And let's figure out the best way to make sure you don't do it again. We are focused on vengeance, punitiveness, incapacitation. I mean, the conditions of confinement in this country are anything but intended to focus on individual rehabilitation and restoration of one's dignity. I just want to give one quick example. It's just such a remarkable one while i was visiting a maximum security prison in berlin walked into uh, an incarcerated man's cell first of all you have to know they can come and go as they please they can have friends over for for dinner their rooms are look more like college dormitories even though it was an older facility the room had all the amenities one would expect in a college dormitory, a television, a radio, posters on the wall, a comfortable bed, one's private commode, and even silverware and plates, uh, including knives and forks. Just absolutely remarkable to think about what it means to prepare someone to be incarcerated, which is the point of it is the deprivation of liberty to have as normal conditions of confinement as will be the case when they return to society. But the one thing I'll never forget is I asked this gentleman whose prison I, whose cell I was in, what did he watch on television? And he said, Oh, one of my favorite shows is MSNBC's Lockdown Nation. He says, I cannot believe what goes on in American prisons. That's crazy. <laughs> 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 and it just it I mean, he just he was flabbergasted at what he saw happening in our prisons, which, of course, for that show, overwhelmingly shows black and brown people, you know, at their worst, at their, you know, just absolute worst. And so, you know, think of the irony of that.
0: Well, it highlights that all of these are choices, right? And they're choices we've made as a a country, what to invest in and what to dedicate our resources to and, and what goes by the wayside, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Well, let's uh, let's close by asking if you have any uh, books or articles or podcasts or documentaries or anything that you would recommend to our listeners, just broadly related to the themes of uh, civil discourse or uh, civic participation or, or history.
2: Yeah, well, I'll, re- I'll certainly recommend my show. You've already mentioned it, <laughs> yeah. but it is uh, some of my best friends are uh, is meant to model how we can have conversations around these difficult topics and not be afraid of them. I've also written an article just to kind of extend some of what we talked about today recently. It's in the current issue of Daedalus called The Foundational Lawlessness of the Law Itself, Racial Criminalization and the Punitive Roots of Punishment in America. And then finally, in the tradition of civil debate and discourse, I'd recommend that people watch or rewatch the great debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley, Mm. um, which occurred in Oxford in 1965. Very rich and very telling of the way that some of these same debates about racial disparities are still being answered by conservatives today.
0: All right. Thank you, Khalil. Really appreciate it. Grateful for the time.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being um, thoughtful in, in the questions.